All right, grab a seat if you're going to stick around. Should have handouts coming your way. Uh, Maddie has some on that side, Pastor Bruzik on the other side. Okay. All right, who doesn't have a handout? Anybody missing one? Perfect. All right, let's pray. We'll start out with this uh, great prayer from the end of the liturgy. Uh, from the 7th century, so that's nice. O God, by your great love for this world, you did reconcile earth to heaven through your only begotten Son. Grant that we who, by the darkness of our sins, are turned aside from brotherly love, may, by your light shed forth in our souls, be filled with your own sweetness, embrace our friends in you, and our enemies for your sake in a bond of mutual affection. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, uh, you, should have, you should have a handout. Uh, this is a brand new outline for this week. Uh, let's see, you have one? All right, perfect. If you need one, there you go. Two, take two, sell it on eBay. Um, I have uh, announcing God's grace. If you didn't get that last week, stop up here and pick it up. Um, the thing from Quirk I have from England. Last week's outline... That really is old now, but if you want it to put in your files, you can have that. And there is one here, the bit from Luther from 1532, which is late enough to be inspired and inerrant, so that's good. Um, what's that? I, you know what? Nobody said anything. That's exactly right. All right, so um, let's start just by remembering, you know, sort of the context of restitution, where we want to be going. Remember... Restitution is not the first word. Uh, in some sense, it's the last word, uh, or it's the last word toward new life. So the Lord, as a Lutheran at least you know this, the Lord always begins with forgiveness. Forgiveness is not his last word, it's his first word. Uh, and forgiveness has any number of synonyms, forgiveness, justification, making wrongs right. You can say any of those things you want, but what you're saying is the Lord has squared things up between you and the Father in heaven, okay? He does that by declaring you righteous. Um, he does that by forgiving your sins. And frankly, as you heard in the liturgy for today, at the proper preface point, he does that by making you a partaker of his divine nature. That's very important. He actually joins you to the flesh of his son and allows you to do what his son does as God made man. And what does his son do as God made man? What does he do? Glorifies God. He glorifies God through his death. What else does he do? Look at all the things Jesus does through his earthly life. He loves people. How does he love people, though? Forgiving, by telling, and ultimately by doing, right? Good. So you do whatever Jesus has been given to do in and of himself. So forgiveness is the first word. Um, and once forgiveness has taken place, then restitution comes along as a natural progression in the Christian life. Anything less, uh, in some sense, is an aberration. And if you don't believe me, you should just go and read the parable of the sower. What makes for the good seed and the good ground? What does it do? It hears, yeah, it hears, it receives, and it multiplies. It bears good fruit. All, the, all of the plants that are cut down, everything that is considered weed is stuff that doesn't bear good fruit. So a natural progression in the Christian life is to hear, to receive, and to bear. 
What do you hear? I love you. I forgive you. What do you receive? Justification. What do you bear? Good fruit. Or in this case, restitution. Okay? This is organic. This is natural. This is the way Christ has set up his church. And anything less is only giving you half the deal or half the story, and half a story is really no story at all. So look at your outline there. And just so you know where we're going, I actually want to look at some instances where restitution probably needs to be made, and I want you all to think about how we should make restitution. Okay? I've given you sort of the background on restitution. I want to give you some examples now, and I want you to help me think about how we as a congregation can make restitution. I don't want to just give you all the answers. So restitution, very basically, restoring things to a pre-sin state. Restoring things to equality, and as you'll see in the Zacchaeus story, uh, and beyond. Zacchaeus doesn't just say, if I've taken money from someone, I'll pay him back. He says, if I've taken money, I'll restore to them how many times? Four times. So I told you, you know, three weeks ago, test this. Forgiveness makes things right in heaven, and restitution makes things right on earth. Again, we're not Gnostics. It's not just about squaring things up with the Lord in heaven. And we're not humanists. It's not just about having good relationships here on earth. We're Christians, which means both heaven and earth need to be squared up. I was thinking about this yesterday. I walked up to work to you know, work about two or three hours in the afternoon. And I was walking home. I was thinking about how often I myself and others have thought, if I've got a sin against somebody else, I really don't need to square it up with them. As long as I sort of confess my sins, I'm all squared up. Um, that's not how it works. You've got lots of sins against other people and lots of sins against yourself, and some are private and some are public. And certainly, confessing that to the Lord is very important. But if you sinned against someone else, squaring it up with them on earth is just as important as squaring it up with the Father who is in heaven. Okay? You're not forgiven. You are not forgiven the way the Lord intends to deliver forgiveness if you only do one or the other. And the same would apply if you just went out and confessed to your friend, I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry I hurt you that way and never said to the Father in heaven, I'm sorry I acted that way. But my guess is if we err, the side we err on is saying, Father, I'm sorry I told a lie about him. Whether or not we go back to that person and say, I'm very sorry, or to all the other people we've told, I didn't actually, I shouldn't have said that because it was a lie. I don't know if we actually do that. So the scriptural starting point. I do think the Zacchaeus account is important. So look there at Luke 19. And I want to give you some things from this text that we haven't talked about so far. So just look at this one more time. He entered Jericho and was passing through. What does that mean, he was passing through? He didn't plan to stop. Yeah, he doesn't plan to stop, okay? This is like, you know, when you're driving out to California and you have to pass, pass through the states you don't want to stop in. You just keep going. You tell the kids, you know, take a nap or close your eyes. We're not stopping here. He enters Jericho and was passing through. He doesn't plan to stop at all. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And the word chief there, just so you know, is only used once in all of the New Testament and frankly is never used again in Greek literature. The word chief. That sets Zacchaeus apart. He is the guy. And he explains then what a chief tax collector means. It means he's rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead, and the verb there for ran is the same one that's used in the prodigal son. What does the father do when he sees his son? Runs to meet him. 
And I've told you before, it was Aristotle who said, noble men don't run. Noble men don't run. The, prodigal, the prodigal's father makes a disgrace of himself by running through the city. Zacchaeus is a noble man. And what does he do? He runs. He makes a fool out of himself. And climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And there already you have a picture of Jesus on the cross. Jesus makes a fool of himself, and what does he do then when he gets to Jerusalem? He goes up a tree. See it? He makes a fool, he goes up a tree. Zacchaeus makes a fool, he goes up a tree. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. And that verb for stay is almost always used in a Eucharistic context. John 6, Luke 24, the road, the road to Emmaus. To stay with somebody means you eat with somebody. And when you eat with somebody, and that somebody is Jesus, that has utterly Eucharistic overtones. This is very important to the story. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. In the Greek, that's in the future tense. It doesn't mean he's already doing that. Zacchaeus is a Lutheran. That was a joke, Larry. You want to laugh just a little? Uh, like when Pastor Bruzik said, you know, what did you say? Don't be a hater. And I know what haters are because I've watched the Jersey Shore. Nobody thinks that's funny. I thought it was funny, and that was the second time I heard it. Ah. Uh, okay, well, you all need to get out more. Watch some more TV. I told you last week. You know, what was the show I told you to watch last week? Dog the Bounty Hunter. How many of you watched it in the past week? Raise your hand. You actually watched Dog the Bounty Hunter? I'd love to work with Abby to be bounty hunters. That'd be great. Get a big black truck and always drink Starbucks, and she could have big pink fingernails, and we could carry rubber, you know, guns that shoot off rubber bullets. That'd be kind of fun. Second career, yeah. Maybe sooner than you think. Uh, so... That was a joke, Larry. Now, at that point, you should be laughing, okay? <laughs> Zacchaeus is a Lutheran because he's not going to do any of this until the Lord has had dinner with him, until the Lord's forgiven him, okay? He doesn't understand that this is what he's supposed to do until after Jesus has entered his house. So Jesus doesn't come in and say, hey, I think I might stay with you tonight. What have you done lately? And he says, hey, I've given all my goods to the poor, and if I've stolen anything, I return it fourfold. No, he doesn't get it until after he's had table fellowship with Jesus. You remember from the Emmaus account, the disciples' eyes are not opened and their hearts aren't burning, to speak like a good Lutheran, their hearts aren't burning until what happens? He breaks the bread. Okay? Until he breaks the bread. Today, it says, and that means within the visit, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So then you have the structure behind it all. It all begins with Jesus entering the city. Zacchaeus then has tons of money for himself. He's a rich man. The crowd is hostile. They're hostile towards Jesus. Zacchaeus goes up the tree. Then you have Jesus' act of costly love. This is all from, just so you know, Kenneth Bailey. What's his act of costly love? Come down from there. I want to stay at your house tonight. 
pour some scotch. Let's have some dinner. We're going to stay up late and talk about theology. He comes down the tree. The crowd gets angry with Jesus. Zacchaeus then says, hey, I've given, fourfold to the, I've given back to the poor, and I've given fourfold from, to anyone whom I'm stolen from. And then Jesus' final word of love, salvation has come to this house. But what you see in the text, and this is important, Jesus shapes the story. He's at the beginning, he's at the middle, and he's at the end. This story is not about Zacchaeus. And restitution, friends, is not about you. It's about Christ. The act of costly love is the hinge upon which this whole story stands or falls. If Jesus doesn't have dinner with him, this story doesn't make it into the Gospels. The reason it's in Luke is because Jesus sits down and has a meal with him. Christ is present. He's with Zacchaeus, and there is table fellowship. And you know that wherever Christ is present having a meal with his friends, there he is present as one who forgives. And forgiveness, and this is the most startling thing, forgiveness means telling the truth. To Zacchaeus, that means saying, hey, buddy, you're lost, but guess what? I've saved you, you're forgiven. And Zacchaeus then speaks the truth because he says, I will go out and return it fourfold. Okay? Now, true love. We've talked about love quite a bit, um, and that can be a difficult thing. Love, you know, you still hear it in some of your answers, and I'm not, I don't think you mean it this way. But love for many of us still remains an emotion. Love is not an emotion first and foremost. That doesn't mean it can't be emotional. But first and foremost, love is action. And the chief example of that is Christ on the cross. That is not a good feeling. Uh, but he does it out of love. And so from uh, Touchstone there, you have this great little bit on telling the truth and how telling the truth is actually a way of loving somebody. Not only telling them the truth about their sins, but also truth about their forgiveness and also truth about restitution. Take a look at this. True love has come to be seen as truth-telling, sorry, has come to be seen as mean-spirited, bigoted, nasty. Truth-telling is hateful, we have come to believe. Soothing lies are often preferred. Solomon sees things differently. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, Proverbs 26. Isn't that great? If you lie to someone, you actually hate them. That carries two implications, each of which has a converse. First, it indicates that lies are hateful. When we lie, we treat another as an enemy. Conversely, truth-telling is an act of love. Second, Solomon is saying that lies crush, oppress, and beat down. Conversely, truth liberates. Okay? That's important. The way you can love someone best is to do what? Tell them the truth. Now, someone very appropriately said on Friday, there are some truths that shouldn't be spoken. That's exactly right. If your wife says to you in the morning, Larry, do I look fat in this dress? Absolutely not, right? Absolutely not, yeah. Absolutely not, yeah. Because there are some things that telling the truth isn't helpful. That was probably a bad example, and now that's just gone on the radio, and someone will be listening to this later. That was a bad example. However, there are some instances where telling the truth isn't best. But in the grand scheme of the Christian life, there are many instances where telling the truth is the only way to actually love somebody. I've given you some examples here. When we tell someone they've sinned, Someone flip over to Matthew 18, 15 to 20. 
I don't care who it is. Maddie, open up to Matthew 18. Uh, let's see. Do you guys have a Bible there? No? Who has a Bible? Raise your hand if you've got a Bible. Sandy, open up to 1 John 1 8. Uh, Holly, open up to Matthew 16 19. And way in the back, who is that, Bill? Bill, open up to Revelation 21 5. And I need one more. Right here, open up to Matthew 6 10, part B. There are many instances in the Christian life where telling the truth is the only way to love someone. And I've given you four examples here. When we tell someone they've sinned. Maddie, do you have that? Thank you. Now, we've talked a lot about Matthew 18 in the last 18 months. Um, one of our problems is we do what? You know, the three steps. We usually begin at step number three and work our way backward, right? So that's our first problem. But hopefully AOR helped us correct that problem. So you begin with one, tell it to your brother, bring a couple witnesses, and then tell it to the church. Ultimately, what is the purpose of doing this to your brother? To restore him, which is just a nice way of saying to love him. You go to your brother and you tell him, not only you've sinned against me, you're telling him the truth. You've hurt me very deeply. Here's what you've done. But the goal in all of this is to love you. Truth-telling is a way of loving someone. Who's got 1 John 1.8? Read that for us, would you? And you've all heard this before. If you claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us, which means... If you confess that you have sins, what's inside of you? Truth. When we forgive a sin, Matthew 16, 19, who's got that? Good. Now, so many times Lutherans, you know, uh, we talk about, well, that would be snarky, so I'm not going to say that. Okay, uh, Matthew 16, 19. Thanks for reading that. Uh, the way that's structured in the Greek is, and this is important, this is why it's important to have someone who can read Greek. The way it's structured in the Greek is, not that your pastor comes to you and says, Larry, I forgive you, and guess what? Jesus is off in heaven listening, so Jesus says, well, thank God Pastor Gainick forgave him because I didn't know what to do in this case. So I will forgive him too. The way it's structured is, the Father in heaven forgives the sin first, and what does the pastor do? He speaks for the Father. It's precisely the same thing with you. When you forgive your brother or your sister when they've sinned against you, it's not you who's coming up with this forgiveness. The Father in heaven forgives, and you then speak what Jesus has already said. You are telling the truth of heaven. Does this make sense? See how easy this is? Now, when we make restitution for sin, Revelation 21.5. Bill, you have that back there?
good. Behold, I am making all things new. Now, you know, doubtless, as Jesus says, one of you will say to me, well, that's heaven, that's not here. Somebody read Matthew 6, 10b. Who's got that? Go ahead, Eric. The Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, all things are being made new. Relationships, community, your flesh, your soul, everything is being made new. But you don't have to wait for heaven for that to happen. Jesus says to his apostles in Matthew 6, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you're praying for it in heaven, you should be praying for it now. You're speaking the truth. This is the way it's going to be. And this is the way I want it here as well. Now, the reason the first three are crossed out is, hopefully, Lord willing, we've all done those three things. First and foremost, hopefully, we've told someone they've sinned. If you didn't do it, we paid AOR to do it. We did, and I'll give you an example here in just a minute. Someone said, hey, you guys have got some sins. They told the truth. Hopefully we confessed sins back in October or whenever that night was, um, and that was telling the truth. We all received forgiveness that night because we all said, I forgive you to one another. That was speaking the truth. But have we made restitution for sin? Have we brought heaven's relationship down to earth? That's where we're stuck right now. And again, unless we can get through restitution... We don't have the fullness of what the Lord intends for this community. And we don't have the fullness of forgiveness. Forgiveness means you go back and make wrongs right. So, what I've given you then to follow are one, two, three, four examples. These are not my own. These are straight from the AOR report. Okay? This is exactly what AOR wrote. I have tweaked it. In fact, if it's italicized, I left it. That's not my, itali that's not my italics. Um, I'm not trying to emphasize anything. I cut it right out of the document. Uh, four bits here from AOR. Now what I want to do is read these to you. There are things that AOR have said, this is the truth about you as a congregation. These are the sins you've committed. We, I pray, have told the truth about our sins. Yeah, you're right. We did do those things and we're very, very sorry. And I pray if you've offended someone else or the Lord himself, he's forgiven you and said, here's the truth about my forgiveness. It all sticks. Now we have to figure out the truth of restitution. What does it mean to bring this relationship full circle? Back to where it was intended by Christ to be. So I'm not going to give you the answer. I have some thoughts down here, but I want you to just tell me. This is like free association. What, what comes to mind as far as restitution is concerned? And we'll go from there. Third commandment. In addition, a few stopped attending worship in response to the conflicts. And again, I didn't italicize these, just so you know. The absence of commitment to feeding on and trusting the word of God is a serious sin against the third commandment that results in serious consequences. It is no surprise that members of St. John Lutheran Church and School were failing to show God's word, uh, failing to follow God's word and responding to conflict when they did not take seriously his command to study his word and apply it to themselves. We grow in faith toward Christ and are moved to good works through the power of the gospel, precisely what I've said to you this morning. And God empowers us through the means of grace, namely the word and sacraments, infant and immature Christians, 
cannot grow in faith or service to God without the meat of the word. Okay? Now, that's what AOR has said of us. This is your sin. Again, we've confessed, I pray. We've been forgiven. If you have confessed, you've been forgiven. Now, how do we make restitution for this sin? That's the question on the table. Okay. Yep. Good. So, just to start, basically, uh, somebody asked a couple weeks ago, what's a basic definition of restitution? And I think it's, it's something like, in most cases, it's doing precisely the opposite of what you've already been doing. So if you don't help your wife at home and she says, gosh, you're not a very good husband, my advice to you is, help your wife at home, right? If your sin is, you haven't been coming to church or Bible study, the first way toward restitution is, once you've been forgiven, start coming back, right? Start coming back. What else? you have something, Jack? Yes. Yeah, and this is what AOR was so helpful about, is unless you're in the presence of a Jesus who speaks and a Jesus who acts, you won't ever be changed. Okay? So start coming back. How often should you come? Not as often as you're available. Yeah. You should come whenever Christ is present. <laughs> okay? This is, Pastor Bruzek, you know, very helpfully went through all the Ten Commandments, which was a great setup for this. But when you get to the Third, third Commandment, you know, that's not optional. And I, believe me, I realize there are times when, when circumstances in life prohibit you from coming. Your kid's in the hospital, you're on vacation, and, you know, hopefully you find another church, whatever it may be. But just staying at home on Sunday morning, I mean... Christ is here. Okay, he's here. So the first thing would be, if you've not been coming, and obviously all of you are here at Bible study, but some of you took a break, some of you didn't come very faithfully, if you've not been coming, come faithfully. And if you want to follow the Zacchaeus model, and I know it's not possible for everyone, you know, Zacchaeus gives back fourfold. He doesn't just bring things back to even, he actually goes forward in the positive. Which means, gosh, the Sabbath is here on the weekend, but if you can make it, you might come to the Eucharist during the week. That makes sense? Just another way of making restitution. This is a very easy one. Believe me, they get more difficult as we go along. Okay? So this one's simple. If you haven't come, come. If your friends don't come, tell them to come. Church and Bible study. Okay? Yes? Yeah, let me, let me, um, the question, let me rephrase the question. The question is, let me, let me pose it this way. Was Luther as interested in the Eucharist as maybe we are today? Um, oftentimes it's, often as people don't uh, accurately report, you know, Luther's church functions. Uh, Luther, I think, had the Eucharist every day, as far as I know. He certainly preached every day, a couple times a day, and uh, certainly coming out of the tradition he came out of, having a service during the day without the Eucharist would be very foreign to him. Now, uh, he may not have had the Eucharist twice a day, so if he had it in the morning, maybe he didn't have it at night. Uh, but Luther, 
if anybody was trying to defend keeping the Eucharist at a place of prominence, it was Luther. In fact, I would propose to you it was other Lutherans after him, even Melanchthon, who uh, took a step in, the different, in a different direction as far as the Eucharist is concerned. For Luther, the Eucharist is the heart and soul of his life. And all you have to do is read the Genesis commentary, which he writes on his deathbed. This is old, you know, old man Luther who says, I'm looking back on my life, what was important? And you see all over sacramental overtones, the Eucharist is everything. You see it all over the place. So I don't know if it's a fair criticism of Luther to say he didn't necessarily believe the Eucharist was as important as people today. Certainly there were other Lutherans like that. And you saw that most prominently even in the past 150 years of Lutheranism. Once it came to America, all hell broke loose because suddenly who were they aligned with? Not the Catholics, but the Reformed. And that's the same time you saw the, the body come off the cross. When the Eucharist didn't retain a place of prominence, the body left the cross. And you, so you sort of see what happened was they came to the United States, they were all on their own, and who did they get hooked up with? Primarily with the Reformed. For many good things. Uh, but when that starts to influence your own theology, that's when it becomes very difficult. Yeah. No, it wasn't. They, even in Germany, yeah. Yeah. Um, but those were, those were dark days for the Lutheran Church. And they've since, you know, in some sense, repented of that. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And why, you know, those of you who were around at that time or had parents who were, why did people not take the Eucharist as frequently as they do today? Yeah. Wanted, exactly. The church I attended before the last year church was the other one I went to, and, um, and it was once a month. Yep. Good Friday, it just, it, it, and there's always a luncheon afterwards. It's, like a big, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, how many of you like steak? <laughs> how many of you would only have steak once a year to keep it special? <laughs> Case in point. Okay? I do, t I mean, I, that, you're exactly right. The reason was so it remained special. Think about all the things you love in life. And how many of those things would you be willing to say, you know what, I only have that, I'm going to wait about 12 months to have that again. Yeah, tell your wife you love her once a year. <laughs> See how that works out for you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, tell your kids one time a month, hey, I love you and I want to, you know, sit with you on the couch. How, that, how your kids, you know, sort of are shaped and formed. It's a very odd thing. Nowhere in the scriptures does Jesus do away with the things he loves in order, so, in order for him to love him more. In fact, Jesus, the main criticism of Jesus is what? He eats meals with people too often and who are sinners. So you're right. That was part of the reason coming over. We don't want to, you know, take advantage of it. Well, you know, think about everything else in life. Before I forget, I'm looking at Carol, and I forgot to hand this out. This goes to St. Matthew's downtown, the soup kitchen. Pastor Lowe's, they need about a million bucks uh, to turn things around. So if you've got a big check in your wallet... Drop it in, um, but they are a great, great group, and we need to help them out. Did you have something, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, you know, there was a time in the Missouri Synod's history where churches were starting every weekend because there's so many people who were going to be Lutheran. Um, and what happened was you couldn't put pastors out fast enough. That was true. That was a time when it was true that the harvest was plentiful and the workers were few. <laughs> What's the case today? The harvest is not plentiful and the workers are many. That's why there were 30 seminary students who didn't get placed this year. Why does that happen? There aren't as many churches who can either afford a pastor or who are even in existence anymore. So partly it is, uh, it is the way in which the church sort of expanded. But, needless to say, if you weren't here, uh, come back. Now, fifth commandment. This work gets a little more difficult. And maybe this will be the last one. What's that? Oh, it is 11. Okay, next week, fifth commandment. Or no, I won't be here next week. Uh, we're not going to have Bible study next week. It's Pentecost. We'll come back the week after. Sorry about that. Um, voters meeting next week. Yeah, please come. I think, if I'm not mistaken, you can register downstairs, and the voters meeting will be up here, I believe. I don't know. Check the bulletin. Okay? Uh, I'm very sorry about getting that around late. If you have a dollar, drop it in, um, and we'll see you in two weeks. Please come back. Keep your, uh, keep your outlines if you can, and we'll have, have a go at this then next time around. Lord, remember us in your kingdom. And teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.